0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Well With, All. Well With All believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Well With All's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Well With All. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered, It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering these new faces of Boston.
1: You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the Radar means ahead of
0: the curve.
2: It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, will Chick-fil-A finally land in Boston? More than a third of transgender high school students attempt suicide. And how do the Democratic primary candidates look from an LGBTQ standpoint? It's those stories and more on our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, online dating, cross-racial relationships, and black feminism, Emerson professor and author Kim McLaren tackles these and other heart and head matters with piercing and poignant commentary.
3: Men rejected me for being too tall, too black, too smart, too educated, too serious, too old, too laden with children, too far from their homes. So many men rejected me, and so many more rejected some projection of me that I did not recognize, that taking it personally became impossible.
2: Thirteen essays are included in Kim McLaren's new book, Womanish, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Love and Life. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me in the studio, Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or BAGLEY. Welcome, Grace.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
2: Also joining me, E.J. Graff, journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. Hello, E.J. Hey, Callie. And finally, Jansen Wu, executive director of Boston GLAD GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Hello, Jansen.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Well, I'm glad to have all of you. Um, Once again, we've had an incident that has reached national attention because the person that was in the middle of it is an actor pretty well known to people. It's Jesse Smollett. He is a lead actor on the Fox show Empire. Now on the show, he plays a gay character. For a long time, he had not said what his sexual orientation was, but he did open up about his sexuality after an appearance on The Ellen Show. Let's take a listen.
3: There is no closet. There's never been a closet that I've been in. I don't own a closet. I've right. a dresser. Right. But I don't have a closet. Right. But I have a home, and that is my responsibility to protect that home. Right. So that's why I choose not to talk about my personal life, but there is, without a doubt, no closet that yep. I've ever been in. Yep. And I just wanted to make that clear.
2: All right. So that's Jesse coming out for the first time to Ellen DeGeneres on her show. Um, he was in Chicago coming home from a club at 2 a.m. and was beaten up. Not only beaten up, but it sounds pretty bad. The police have already uh, described it as a hate crime. He had a noose around his neck. He says they screamed at him, you know, this is Trump's country or make America great again, some variation of that. And they poured bleach, I guess, on him. So they're oh. they're still trying to figure out everything that happened. They don't have any video in that particular part of the city. So I've wanted to talk to you about the specifics of the incident, surely, but the larger problem of, this is something we hear about, but I think we can say safely that this is happening still, um, still. around the country. Increasingly, not
4: mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was thinking this morning about it that he is... It can be so awkward to use sociological terms in ordinary conversation, but right there we have such a painful example of what they call intersectionality, mm. right? He he was targeted not just because he's black, not just because he's gay, not just because he plays black gay man on mm. TV, but for all of the above. If you're in more than one despised identity, you're a bigger target than other people. And the, the noose
2: is so horrifying to yeah. me. That's my guest, E.J. Graff. Jansen, I said still because I think many people think, well, at least in the question of gay in the bigger cities, I mean, we moved beyond this, you know?
1: Unfortunately, we haven't. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, uh, E.J. was saying, I mean, this is an increasing problem. Uh, You know, we've seen hate crimes against all kind of uh, targeted communities, but including LGBTQ communities, really skyrocket in the last few years, including here in Boston. Um, There was just a report from the FBI that tracks this data to show um, that incidents of hate crimes against LGBTQ people, particularly LGBTQ people of color, have really risen in the last two years. And I think that it should be no surprise to anyone that part of the cause of that increase is the political climate
0: that starts at the top.
2: Grace, does something like this on a larger national stage make people more aware of it? What does it do, actually? In- well, I think
0: so. And I think, you know, it speaks to the, the climate when we have our, our leadership at the highest levels in the federal administration saying things that are inflammatory, that uh, seem to uh, encourage or tacitly encourage this kind of behavior. And so it's not new. It's still, it's, obviously, it's continuing and it's increasing. But I, what I see is people feeling more emboldened, feeling like apparently the quote in this incident was a reference to make America great again. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense that if the president of the United States is somehow supportive of what people are doing, that, that somehow it makes it okay. So all communities are under attack that have historically faced discrimination and violence, and only more so. And um, that emboldening
1: mm, mm, will only be mm, worse by what I imagine will just be silence from the administration mm, about, you right. know, the use of his own campaign slogan in this horrific incident.
2: Right. Um, I Just one other little piece of this Many of the stars who work with Jussie on the show and other people and musicians and actors have come out particularly to say, this is our friend, oh my God, what's going on? And Kevin Hart, who is a comedian, came under some scrutiny because he was named to be the Oscar host and then a whole raft of homophobic tweets or comment. I guess he has a part of it in his show, which I didn't realize that it was a mm. it was a standard piece of his show to talk about what he would do to his son if he thought he was gay. So he came out. I mean, he's apologized for it. It was back and forth about it. He's not going to be doing the Oscars. He came out and sent a note saying, oh, my God, this is horrible. There should be none of this. Choose love. But the backlash from a lot of people was, well, this is why these kinds of, quote, jokes matter. Yeah. And I wondered how, if you all wanted to respond to that.
0: Well, I think it's true. Again, it's when we create or foster a climate, whether it's through jokes or humor and performance or whether it's, you know, administration, it creates a climate that normalizes bad behavior. It normalizes violence and treating people as less than. And I think it, that that's what is I think is more pervasive. And we live in a social media world where all of this gets amplified. And so I think the marginalized communities, we're all feeling under attack. And this kind of thing sends, sends a, a message to all of us whether we're directly impacted or not that we're all at risk and I work with young people and so young people in particular are seeing all of this and and they have their lived realities in their communities or on the streets day to day and so something like this is even if a, if an actor on a TV show mm. a celebrity can be targeted then you know none of us are safe
2: and, and we should emphasize that the police are saying that they feel that he was targeted. All right. Well, I'm sure this will be developing in the next few weeks, so we'll find out more about it. But for right now, I'm glad you were with me to comment on this.
4: Can I add one more thing, Kelly?
2: And that's that the only
4: hope that I see here is that it is discussed and, well, certainly Jansen's right. We're not going to hear anything from the top. In general, we are hearing condemnation of the attack. And that is such a change from the thousand years ago when we were young. Mm-hmm. We all remember people who were killed mm-hmm. and no one but other gay people knew. Mm-hmm. So there's
2: there's some progress. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for adding that. Let me move on to a very recent report by the uh, Centers for Disease Control that nearly 2 percent of high school students identify as transgender and more than a third of them attempt suicide. Grace, this is where you live. You work with mm-hmm. transgender young people. Mm-hmm. This surprise you?
0: It doesn't surprise me. Uh, I think what is important about this is that we're beginning to get more data that demonstrates what we know anecdotally in, in the field, which is that you know, to be trans or gender nonconforming or gender non-binary at any age, but especially young people, is to be in an environment, to be in a society that, that stigmatizes those identities, that directly targets and attacks uh, us for the who being who we are. And young people often experience the brunt of that. And so the increase Suicide rate is a response to that of living in a society where they may not imagine that they have an opportunity to live healthy, successful lives. The other thing I just
1: want to add is that the fact that the CDC actually is collecting this information is historic. I mm-hmm. believe this is the first time they're collecting information oh, on know. LGBTQ youth and oh. their kind of use risk behavior assessment. Um, and this is the CDC where, I think it was like two years ago, there was a lot of controversies about the words that they weren't allowed to use. Oh, that's um, correct. Yeah, so there's so many issues of concern that get a lot of attention. Um, And I just want to kind of highlight the importance of other news um, that has real impact um, on everyday people's lives, where we need people's focus, we need people's advocacies, we need people's voices. And just the fact that the CDC was able to issue this report, I think, is uh, just a huge victory.
2: They're calling the the findings of this report groundbreaking. So I don't know if the scientists were even shocked themselves to, to find this routine response Response to and the struggle for these young people. Mm. Well, what I was going to say is, this
4: is in a way the the other side of the coin of the Kevin Hart comment that you pointed out, right? Some of the reaction to saying it's hateful to be, and I'm going to say queer, mm. but and I'll come back to that for a second. To be queer is attack, and some of it is self attack. Either way, you feel it in your body when you know that you are hated every group that has hateful things said about them knows this, right? You know that other people despise you and despise something about you that feels central. And that is hardest, we all know, in those teenage years before you grow a self that can accommodate that. Mm. Other people don't like something about you. I mean, by the time you get old, you're like, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. But not then. You're very vulnerable then in those years. And the reason I say queer is because there are a lot of young people I would say for whom what is perceived by other people as gay is gender nonconforming, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. at that age. And sometimes those are young trans people and sometimes those are young gay people. It, it doesn't matter. It, that nexus of not behaving as a man or a woman is supposed to behave, that is where you get hated. Mm-hmm. Um, And we're talking about
2: traditional, you know, behaviors. Yes. It's all in quotes. Lots of quotes. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes.
4: That is what gets perceived. That's what's called gay by 11 year olds. Oh, that's so gay. Mm -hmm. Now we identify that behavior as gender nonconforming. When I was young, you were you were still calling it. Oh, my God, that's so gay. That's the target. And that's what we have to be kind to.
2: And I think also we want to, if we put this in even a broader context, because there's a lot of concern about young people in suicide, period. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if the CDC is narrowing in on a segment of the young people to say, okay, this is really troubling, these numbers are higher still. And it's something to pay attention to. And they don't offer any, nor is that their job to figure out, you know, how to address this. They're just pointing out, here's where we are, and people who are concerned about this uh, need to be paying attention.
4: And maybe should say, yes, let's have trans people in the
2: military. Well, that's my next story. (laughs) Because there has been a reversal of former President Obama's 2016 Lifting of the ban of uh, or making certain, making it comfortable for transgender people to serve. And now uh, President Trump put a ban in. Um, There had been some back and forth legally in the most recent decision, five to four, a very conservative court, Jansen, said, "Okay, we're reviving it. It's not in place just yet while many things are worked out from a legal perspective or not. It's unclear. Are the people who are there in the military, do they leave now? I mean, what happens?
1: That's a great question. And there is a lot of confusion on this. Glad is litigating two of the cases that was heard by the Supreme Court. Um, And we are disappointed in the outcome. But it's not the end of the cases. So what did the court do? The court did two things. Uh, First, and this is good news, it refused to actually hear the cases. The administration had actually asked to leapfrog the normal kind of appellate process and have the Supreme Court just decide this once and for all. And the Supreme Court said, no, we want this to go through the normal litigation path. The second thing it did do, though, it did dissolve the preliminary injunction that had put a hold on the ban while the cases went forward. And that was really important because there are already people who are serving openly as transgender service members. Mm. And they had done that in reliance on the government telling them it's okay to come out now and serve openly and honestly. And so those are the people that we're worried about the most now. The administration says that they will continue to allow those people who've already come out to serve. Um, but what does that really mean for somebody to be serving and yet be also be deemed unfit mm-hmm. by their commander-in-chief at the same time? Um, this is really not a tenable policy. And how does that play out
2: with the people that you're working with? Because that's a, it's a team thing we know in the military. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how uh, will they be treated um, by the other people um, in their troops? How will they be treated by the commanding officers? Um, there's just a huge amount of confusion and lack of clarity come from the administration on how to treat and service members who just want to serve the countries and, and should
0: be able to do so without having to hide who they are.
2: Grace, are you really disappointed in this Supreme Court? Yeah,
0: absolutely. That Jansen said it very well. It set up a dynamic that is devastating for people who are in the military, uh, devastating for people who would like to be in the mil- serve in the military. And I think it speaks to a larger issue where this administration is targeting trans people, targeting LGBT people, targeting people of color, immigrants, Muslims, without any thought process around the impact it will have on communities and the lives of people, families, children, young people. It's a policy of, of attack, but not grounded in anything that is best for this country.
2: If it stands, E.J. What happens? I mean, just your response to that. Let's say oh, that I, after all said and done, people just get kicked out, the ones who have come forward. Well, I think I, I was talking to one of the lawyers
4: on background, so I can't say who, yesterday, who told me that, that they're not going to get kicked out, but they can't, at, at least as it stands now. Well, that's right now, but I mean, out. but, if, but I'm they're, saying they're just if, not yeah. going to be able to advance right. or enter the military. If, if you're in the Naval Academy, you can't then go into the Navy. Right. So I don't know.
2: I have hope. I don't think it will. I was asking the question: What happens if it does? That's the, <laughs> that, that's my question. Then, then well, where are we? Well, if it does, yeah, yeah.
4: If it does, mm. watch for no women in um, combat situations. I think mm. what the administration is doing is yes, it affects us all as LGBT people. It also is it's backing that traditional or conventional, let's say, vision of men and women, gender separation different kinds of people. It's in a much broader way. So this is also a front in anti-feminism and saying, you know, no, women are like this. Men are like that. So watch for women to be pushed out as well.
1: Hmm. And if I can just add one more thing, Um, it's also kind of... A mark of equal citizenship. You know, there mm-hmm. have been historically targeted groups that have been excluded from the military for very specific reasons because they were deemed second-class citizens, African-Americans, women, gay people, and not transgender people. And so one of the lasting impacts, should this ban mm-hmm. continue, is just the demeaning of transgender people as second-class citizens.
0: Right. And I think it's a yeah. test. I think that the, the transgender community is a low, low-hanging low fruit, and if they're successful, I, then I then agree with But on. It's just yeah. going to keep on going.
2: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Grace Sterling Stowell of Bagley, E.J. Graff of the Monkey Cage from The Washington Post, and Jansen Wu of Boston's Glad, And we're discussing all the latest LGBTQ news you need to know. So years ago, the late mayor, Tom Menino, rejected Chick-fil-A's attempts to build a uh, facility in Boston. There are some in Massachusetts now, and most recently, Mayor Marty Walsh has said, well, I think they've changed sort of their orientation. This all stemmed from the president of the company making some comments against same-sex marriage and gay folks in general, and he hasn't said anything since then, but that was enough to give a lot of people pause, and there has been a formal and informal, I think, boycott by a lot of folks from Chick-fil-A wherever you live across the country. And so it now stands to be moving into downtown Boston. Your thoughts, Jensen?
1: (laughs) I mean, should Chick-fil-A come to Boston? I mean, I think they'll be robust and, I think, ultimately healthy you know, discussion and debate about their policies and the statements that they made and what amends they will make for those statements. Um, and I think that's actually good for democracy. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's good for democracy for us to be able to debate uh, that, um, to be able to boycott, um, make our voices heard, both through protests as, through, as well as through our wallets.
2: I mentioned that Mayor Menino felt strongly enough about it to write a letter and to Chick-fil-A and say no. Let me let everybody take a listen to Marty Walsh discussing his stand on Chick-fil-A coming in.
1: Um, you know, Chick-fil-A has gone through a process here uh, in the community.
2: And, you know, I've been kind of paying attention to see what the story is and, and what's been going on, any feelings we have. I've not heard anything negative about Chick-fil-A coming in. So...
4: Well, according to Think Progress, an article from last year, I think, they're still donating quite heavily to – I mean, they do wonderful work. Their foundation – I looked up their uh, 1099s – wonderful work with a lot of homeless and um, underprivileged youth, foster care youth. Um, But some of the organizations they give give to are virulently anti-gay, and I would feel horror – at a gay person ending up, a gay child
2: ending up in one of those facilities. I should pick up on what you just said, because it wasn't just the comments from the president. And by the way, he made his comments from his own faith-based perspective. But it is what you just said, that the company continues to and has long donated to organizations that funded um, anti-LGBTQ initiatives. So that still remains no matter what. And that's for Chick-fil-A, wherever it's located. <laughs> that's where, that's yeah. where they
4: give money. Yeah. And
2: uh, I love Jansen's perspective
4: of, you know, it's healthy for democracy. It is. It's good for us to have the conversation. And uh, I will never give them two pennies. <laughs> All right, Grace. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I, I think it is about community accountability. So I think that it's important when businesses or celebrities or individuals or elected officials say or do things that hurt communities, that it's our job to speak up and bring attention to that. Some people do change their views or their positions, publicly or privately. And and I think that then people can make decisions around moving forward. Well, you know, is this, Does it feel like there has been a sincere effort to change, to recognize that? negative impact uh, or is it really just lip service and is it same old, same old? So I think that in this situation, time will tell. But I think uh, I agree with what the others have said, that it's uh, it's an important discussion for us to have because it's about accountability. Um, and I think it is a test of where people
2: may have said they stood before because the one thing Chick-fil-A is known for is really good food, (laughs) really good fast food. So for a lot of people, when this came up, they had to take a stand, and it was hard. Well, one of
1: my favorite stories (laughs) is that we actually got, many years ago, a donation from somebody for— (laughs) $5.61 $5.61 <laughs> to offset their Chick-fil-A purchase. Oh. Ah. They recognize that they just <laughs> couldn't go without picking up that delicious chicken sandwich, but they wanted to kind of neutralize the empire. Mm. Oh, so you can kind of call kind it of like a, you know, a carbon credit or like a that. credit. That's pretty
2: interesting. Okay. Alright, moving on. I know we've been very down in this conversation. Here's some interesting uh, uplifting news. Several new governors have signed anti-discrimination executive orders. Now, the thing with executive orders is that they they can be overturned by the next person, as we've seen at the top with President Trump overturning President Obama's executive orders. But right now, in a lot of uh, what this interesting piece noted was in a lot of red and purpley states, this is happening where there is specific in the legislation or in the executive order, a notation that there not be any gender bias in addition to the slate of other kind of biases. I will note that in Florida... Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis signed an anti-discrimination executive order, but he left out the gender discrimination. Progress, Grace.
0: Well, I think it is progress, and I think that uh, you know, we for years in our advocacy in the LGBTQ communities, we we always said we're part of all communities, all families, all communities, all all institutions, and so forth, uh, whether people know it or not. And I think that uh, what often happens in these situations is when a governor or or a person in, in a leadership role uh, has a family member or a friend or a co-worker or uh, who gets to know us in in a real kind of way, then they. they get it on a fundamental level around discrimination. And, and that's different than, than in a blue state where there's generally a progressive commitment to a range of progressive values. And so I think that is progress, slowly but surely.
1: Can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's progress in kind of the next phase of the LGBTQ fight. So we've made tremendous progress in states that are you know, more LGBTQ friendly. And um, we're now at the kind of next level of kind of political climate where we have to figure out how to make progress in states that are, as you put it, more purpley or red. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is really important to, for us to learn how do we talk uh, with moderates about mm-hmm. the importance of treating everyone fairly. And just to lift up one great victory here in New England, New Hampshire last session became the first state in the country with an entirely Republican-controlled legislature and a Republican governor to pass transgender non-discrimination protections.
2: That's Mm -hmm. right. That's important to note.
1: And that, I think, can be a blueprint um, for how we not make equality a partisan issue across the country. Mm
2: -hmm. AJ?
4: This year, uh, I think, You know, I wrote an article for Politico about Republican women who were leaving the Republican Party, um, not necessarily becoming Democrats, Mm -hmm. uh, since Trump, that um, there's been a significant uptick of college-educated women leaving the Republican Party when they've had that identity all their lives. And more than one independently said to me, I just can't take how the Republican Party has been or, you know, how my congressman Mm -hmm. has been about gay people. I think there is a strain of social liberalism that especially includes these women's children or aunt or whoever they knew. It was very personal to them. That was the thing that put them over. So I
2: think there's a lot of hope there. I also think that young conservative people years ago— started in their own platform said that's not a part of our platform yeah. y'all gonna have to get mm-hmm. used to us on mm-hmm. this issue which mm-hmm. was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I started seeing that back in when Huckabee was running for president <laughs> so that that is a trajectory for some, there are some constituencies within particularly conservative groups that are that are not had never been with that program mm-hmm. so this is not new to them. All right really quickly there are candidates that are trying to make themselves known in terms of where they stand on LGBTQ issues. Tulsi Gabbard is a representative from Hawaii. Uh, She first started uh, after announcing her campaign for president by making an apology for her past remarks to the LGBTQ community. So let's take a listen. In my past, I said and believed things that were wrong. And worse, they were very hurtful
4: to people in the LGBTQ community and to their loved ones. Many years ago, I apologized for my words. And more importantly, for the negative impact
2: that they had. I sincerely repeat my apology today. My issue, or it's not an issue, but it's just a note. I'll note that a lot of people are trying to be real clear on this as they start to run for office, and maybe they might not have been in the past. She had to come out and apologize. You can decide whether you accept it or not. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has made clear where she's long stood in support. And then there's a new guy in, that people can't pronounce his name, but it's Boot, <laughs> boot Edge Edge. Um, he is a gay mayor from uh, South Bend, Indiana, who has just announced that he was, he's running for the presidency as well. And so all of these issues will be necessarily a part of people's looking at candidates for the 2020 campaign. How do you feel about a Tulsi Gabbard and apologies or just past Mm -hmm. behavior apologies in general when it comes to this and whether or not this has to be something that uh, candidates have to pay attention to and address in a very significant way?
1: Glad you know, does not make any endorsements either yeah. way when it comes to electoral campaigns. Um, but I will comment on the apology. Um, and not just with regards to Gabber's apologies, but, you know, just, I mean, this is something that we're seeing more and more mm-hmm. as we've been talking about. There's been progress in society about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And for me... I truly deeply believe in the uh, in the importance of people um, to be able to evolve in their opinions. Um, and so for me, it's less about that original sin, um, but about mm. what they do okay. after that to make amends. Tulsi Gabbard's apology sounded sincere to me. And what I would like to hear next is what is she going to do for mm-hmm. the LGBTQ mm-hmm. community? Does she really get the challenges that we face? What are those policy recommendations? And will she go to bat for us?
4: Okay. Mm-hmm. EJ? Yeah. Well, as I'm sure all your listeners can tell, we are all nodding our heads fervently. <laughs> <laughs> As he speaks. Of course, every, people change and especially on LGBTQ, RSD, WXYZ. No, there are not really that many letters. I just want to be clear. I am mocking us. We've all watched people change in our personal lives and in, in political life. And that's, that's fine. Although I, I dislike the use of the word hurtful. The hurt isn't the thing to look at. It's the harm. Mm. It's harmful mm. in all the ways we've been discussing this all this time.
2: So harm is what I want to focus on, not hurt. Yeah. All right. Grace, can anybody running for office now not address these issues?
0: Well, I th- certainly think it's a measure of progress that so many uh, politicians are feeling like they, they have to address. They either have to make a statement or or if there's past behavior or, or actions that, that they need to apologize for. So that's progress. Uh, I think it will be an interesting question uh, around, you know, the sincerity of apologies and what that really means, as Jansen said. So how is that backed up? You know, is it is it really just they feel like they had to apologize and then they don't want to talk about it again? Or are they going to become strong allies in recognition of the issues facing our community. So it's a good thing that we're now seeing this, and time will tell as we move forward uh, You know who who is sincere and, and actually becomes an advocate for the communities that they might previously have, have harmed. And I agree that, yeah, it's not about hurting our feelings, although that's never a good thing either. It's about the true negative impact and harm to communities. All right. I'm squeezing this in, and I
2: want you to give me some quick answers. We get letters often from people saying, Why is it LGBTQ roundtable? Shouldn't it be LGBTQIA? And you just made fun of this, and I'm glad it was you, EJ. (laughs) I did not make fun of this. Send the letters to EJ. I just need to read from you all, you know, and some people just say LGBT, period. So, where are we?
1: I think we're everywhere, and I think that's (laughs) a wonderful place to be. I mean, nobody speaks for the entire community. Um, We are broad. We are diverse. We are
4: argumentative. We are (laughs)
1: argumentative. Perhaps one day it will be the norm uh, to have, you know, X number of letters, or we choose one word that encompasses everyone. Um, what I will say, though, um, and I'll just kind of talk through GLAD's process for a second. Um, GLAD was founded actually as uh, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders at a time when very few organizations had the words "gay and lesbian" in their names. Uh, for very important, it was radical. Impor- it was radical. Um, and in fact, when our founder John Ward um, filed his first brief in court. With the name Gay and Lesbian in it, uh, he wasn't sure that the court would accept it. We also, that was our DBA, but our legal name was actually Park Square Advocates because we were worried about people who were closeted but wanted to write us a check but didn't want to write Gay and Lesbian. That's on doing
2: it. business as, by the way, if people doing wondered business what as, okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: A few years ago, we decided to change our name. We kept the acronym GLAD, but we changed it to GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. And so we can keep the GLAD at least. And that was really important because we want people to be able to see themselves in the organizations um, and to reflect the work that we've always done. Mm-hmm. So names will always continually evolve. I think that's just the nature of communities. That's the nature of movement. And I think
0: that's something that we can all embrace.
2: All right. And any do you feel strongly well,
0: yeah, well mm-hmm. Bagley's had a similar bagleys mm-hmm. founded just two years after mm-hmm. glad so we were founded as the Boston Alliance of gay and lesbian youth and similarly we've always served a much broader population and now we say Boston Alliance of LGBTQ uh, youth uh, our acronym no longer fits our name but but it's really about inclusion and as, as communities if they're not feeling connected not feeling represented we add the letters we, we come up with new terms that are more perhaps more inclusive but the most important thing is that in individuals and organizations are really backing that up again with, it's not cosmetic, it's not just adding a letter, uh, but saying, but what are you really doing for that the community that is represented by that letter?
2: Last word, E.J.?
4: We're just queer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the letters are always going to change because the part of the identity that doesn't fit the larger society is going to shift. When I was young, what was especially hated was... Loving someone of the same sex. And the gender identity was slapped with that, the gender nonconforming. I was not a girly girl. I'm sure you're shocked to hear. So while you might have felt it there, you were attacked on the other. Now that switched a little bit. It's a little more okay to care for someone of the same sex. A little more. little. But it's it's almost worse to be gender nonconforming than in the old days when everyone was just everyone wore jeans where the hatred is is going to shift so which letter you're going to emphasize is going to shift or which identity you're going to fight about or proclaim because you're mad that it's despised that's going to change so the letters are going to keep changing but we're we're the unusual group so however you want to call us you know as long as you donate to GLAD, we're fine. And Bagley. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all for joining me today. <laughs> Grace Sterling Stowell is the executive director of the Boston Alliance of Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Youth, or BAGLEY. E.J. Graff is a journalist, author, and managing editor of The Monkey Cage at The Washington Post. And Jansen Wu is the executive director of Boston GLAD, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Coming up. Kim McLaren's been thinking a lot about love and life lately. Now she's sharing her stories and lessons learned in a volume of 13 essays. McLaren puts her life on the page, opening up about ill-fated online dating adventures, chronicling a journey to understand her depression, and deconstructing the complications characterizing black-white female friendships. Her book, Womanish, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Love and Life, is our February selection for Bookmarked the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. ¶¶ I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. Thirteen provocative and poignant essays are included in author Kim McLaren's latest book, Womanish, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Love and Life. McLaren offers her clear-eyed observations in the cheekily titled commentaries from All Right Cupid to The Upside of Loving a Sociopath. Kim McLaren is an associate professor at Emerson College's Department of Writing, Literature, and Publishing. She's won multiple awards for her writing, some of which has appeared in the New York Times, Slate, and the Washington Post. Womanish is McLaren's sixth book, and it's our February selection for Bookmark the Under the Radar Book Club. And author Kim McLaren joins me now. Welcome, Kim. Thank you, Callie. So great to be here. I'm so glad to have you. And people should know we know each other. We often appear together on Basic Black here at WGBH. And just in life, we know each other. (laughs) So so that's good. And I'm delighted always to read whatever you have written because you're an excellent writer. Thank you. Um, you. And the same thing is true for this book. So first, let's define womanish. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So why don't you define what you're mean by um, Well, I
3: love it. It comes from or at least my, I picked the title because it comes from the um, Alice Walker's famous um, definition of womanist and she says a womanish a uh, womanist is a black feminist of color, of course. And it comes from the black folk expression, which I did hear growing up in Memphis. I don't know if you did. I did. About you acting, we're both from Memphis, by <laughs> the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, in, in other words, you're acting womanish, which means, you know, you're acting grown, like you really acting like you know what you're talking about. Sometimes it's usually not said in the... The most positive sense is like, you acting too womanish. you need to sit down. Mm -hmm. But what Alice Walker defines it as being acting like a woman, usually referring to outrageous, audacious, courageous, or willful behavior, wanting to know more and in greater depth that is considered good for one. And... I thought that was the perfect title because that's that's what this collection explores is about really diving deep into everything about about being a woman about being a black woman about being grown Mm -hmm. about stepping into adulthood as a woman. You know, we don't. Americans are very suspicious of adulthood yeah. <laughs> in general, um, but I, but I think it's something to embrace and to be exhilarated by, and particularly as a woman, and particularly as a black woman. So that's that's what womanish
2: means. You may be surprised to know there's there are a whole series of books about how to adult at this point. So I think your point is well taken. Right, right. That that people need help now <laughs> yeah. learning how to adult because
3: the the art has been has been lost or maybe. Suffocated. I don't know. I don't know. Or
2: maybe too many helicopter parents. We can get into that's another discussion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so life and love is a is a broad spectrum, and mm-hmm. indeed you've touched on a lot of different things. How did you come to these particular, I won't say issues, but focuses, and what made you want to put put this down on paper?
3: Um, mm-hmm. uh, some of these essays I had published before singly as standalones, so especially the the one on issue, which is about depression, and had gotten a lot of amazing feedback from that and people saying, you know, um, that you, you've said things that I, I want to read or that you helped me and that kind of stuff. And so I I started thinking about what other aspects of my life have I, quote unquote, figured something else out about? Really, that's what this book is. Here I am. in my I'm in my 50s. I don't mind saying it, right? Mm-hmm. I figured out some stuff. How do you pass that knowledge and that wisdom on to the next generation, to my children, to other people? So I looked around at the other issues that I've begun to figure something out about and did some other essays to touch on that, about motherhood, about dating, about love, about um, depression, about relationships with white women. And so
2: that's how the collection came together. All right. Well, let's uh, take a listen. Let's begin with OK Cupid. That's the title of a chapter. And this is about the the whole uh, essay is about putting your toe into the waters of <laughs> online, online dating. dating. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. Um, do you want me to read? Some? Yes, please. Yes. So, start from,
3: so uh, from I'll, I'll just say that this is about because there is the theme that online dating is not for black women, mm-hmm. that it's that it's that it doesn't work for us. So that's what this was about, because it worked for me, mm-hmm. um, but not in the way people might think it is. So I'll just read from this. When I finally took the plunge into online dating, the waters were indeed murky. Some men looked at my profile and declined to message me or did not respond when I worked up the nerve to message them. Some men made clear in their profiles that they did not find black women attractive. Other men straight out told me I was not for them. In isolation, these slings and arrows are wounding. In quantity, they don't so much thicken the skin as make porous the ego, allowing passage straight through. Men rejected me for being too tall, too black, too smart, too educated, too serious, too old, too laden with children, too far from their homes. So many men rejected me, and so many more rejected some projection of me that I did not recognize, that taking it personally became impossible. It was either embrace the profound truth that rejection is not personal, neither at bottom is love, but that's another essay, That regardless of what another person says or does, it is not about you or stop getting out of bed. I kept getting out of bed. Many men passed me over, but many, many more, and I mean hundreds of them, perhaps even a thousand over the years, I lost count, pursued me. Tall men and short men, fit, not so fit, much older and much younger, Smart men and not-so-bright, teachers, lawyers, bankers, telephone linemen, construction workers and snowplow drivers, website designers and other vaguely techie guys, a movie producer, a bricklayer, and at least one plastic surgeon. He was creepy. Black men and white men and Latino men and even Asian men, if you count Papua New Guinea and the Philippines, both of where I seemed, for some unknown reason, to be especially popular. The sheer volume and, yes, variety of offers far beyond what any one woman could receive in a lifetime in the non-digital world obliterated any hovering doubt about my desirability. If white women and Asian women received magnitudes more attention online than I received, God bless them. Thus, the specter of undesirability, which is really the ghost of unworthiness, was finally laid to rest. For the first time in my life, the
2: data worked for me. That's my guest, Kim McLaren. She's reading from her new book, Womanish, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Love and Life. Um, so was that interesting putting that down? <laughs> I mean, these are really personal. I want to tell people that it feels like yes. I, 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 I'm in your living room when, mm-hmm. you're, you're, you know, when you're telling these stories. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I I have this really useful thing for
3: a writer, which is I have total amnesia when I'm writing that other people are going to actually read it. So, I I mean, I really just don't think about it. And I've published six books, so I know that's going to (laughs) happen. But somehow, whenever I start a new book or a new essay or anything, I forget that other people are going to read it. So I'm just writing really to get as close to the truth of what I know and what I think and what I'm trying to find out as possible. And if you're going to do that, you can't write with a sensor over your head. You know, you just you just can't do it. My my idol, James Baldwin, as you know, says that's the job of the of the writer is to explore what it means to be human. And to do that, you have to be honest and you have to be honest with yourself. One of my favorite essays in this book, if I may say, is the one on self-delusion, mm. which is exactly where I'm like, you know, constantly what are the lies we tell ourselves? So I can't be I can't be lying in my work if I'm going to be telling the truth to myself. So, yes, these are personal. And sometimes when that amnesia lifts after publication, I go, oh, my God, what did I? <laughs> oh, my mother, you know, my mother, thank God, is still with us. Right. She yeah. might read this. Uh, in fact, I went to visit her recently and she kept asking for the book and I would brought it for her, but I didn't give it to her till I was walking out the door. <laughs> Got it. I said, here you go, mom. I'm going by." Um, but but. You know, I I don't, I don't, I don't think people say, aren't you embarrassed or aren't you worried about it? And Mm I I think, well, what would I be embarrassed about Mm -hmm. being human? Because that's all I'm writing about being human. So
2: now people know I'm human. Surprise. Yeah. Well, the reason I, I mentioned that is because it is so personal. And, and of course, everybody can have the experiences. We're all human. As you say, we all you know go through some, on, all of these things, but we can't write it so well mm. so that it has a resonance. Mm-hmm. By the way, the, the chapter about uh, delusion is uh, one that I realized, hmm, I live in land a lot. <laughs> 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 this is speaking right to my delusion.
0: Maybe some, I want to turn the page. Some delusions here. are necessary, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I need to turn the page here. <laughs> um, but I, I it, because some of the stuff in here is tough. So yeah. um, one of the, uh, the, the pieces that are really powerful to me is you really talk about depression and how you've dealt with it, you know, from a very um, young age yes. until you know adulthood. Yeah. Um. Lots more people are out front now talking about this, but still, I think it's it's something that people are not accustomed to to reading about, you yeah. know, a, from a regular person. Yeah. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I think that's true. And I mm-hmm. when I, I that was the essay I published um in a in the New England Review of <coughs> Literary Review, which is a very wonderful and I was. And prestigious review and I was very pleased to be published there and I got a lot of feedback from that um all positive but from some you know people I know and ironically from people who see me on Basic Black who say I thought your life was perfect you know I see you sitting up there on TV and I was wow. shocked you yeah. know I've had I had literally had people say that to me and I'm like uh duh. again I'm human <laughs> right um so and, and especially for black people you know mm. depression is still a subject that has some shame we've talked about this on mm. the show some mental health issues and that's deadly. You know, silence around these issues is deadly. So it was not hard for me to write about. It was necessary. It was therapeutic. Um, it was, but it's not therapy. It's therapeutic, but not therapy. Mm-hmm. Writing is not therapy, but it can be therapeutic. Um, and if it can help someone else, which I know it did, then that's, you know, that's all gain.
2: Well, I definitely want you to read, uh, a little, uh, uh, an excerpt from that chapter. Um, and you named your depression, by the way, so you should explain that. That's why the, the title is Ishu Finds Work, right. because you really put me there in in the moment of your struggle.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I named it mm-hmm. after um, Eshu, who is the mm-hmm. trickster god of the Yoruba people, um, you know, um, who kind of mediates between um the people and and the higher power and is always playing tricks and and the, my depression when i was in it came to have a kind of personality in that way, that way i mean and and also a, a kind of it's not all the thing that people who don't have depression don't understand is that it is it is in some ways comforting which is why it's hard to let go of because it also especially if you've had it all your life which i have it defines who you are um so getting rid of it is a, is a kind of a you know, twofold experience, Mm -hmm. so. All right, well, here's a, let's have you read from uh, that chapter. Okay. This is about a couple pages in. Near the bottom of the tumble, I began calling on people for help. This is almost always a mistake. One has to be very careful who one talks to in the midst of a depressive episode. Not everyone is your friend, not even your friends. People want to be helpful, but what they think of as help is less like tossing a rope to a drowning person and more like tossing an anvil. What could possibly be the matter? You're fine. It's always darkest. God never closes a door. Smile and the world smiles. Come on, you're a strong black woman. This kind of help stems partly from good intentions, but also from a pervasive societal belief that depression is really a kind of moral failure, a bad attitude, a shortage of will. Percentage of people who think depression is a personal weakness, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 54. Percentage of black people who think so, 65. In the United States of America, land of the eternally young and the eternally cheerful, complexity of feeling is suspect. Anyone disinclined towards the warm bath of relentless happiness risk being branded negative. Once on a date, A man I had just met asked me if I believed I would find my soulmate. I refrained from saying that I didn't believe in soulmates, or that research actually shows people who believe in soulmates tend to be less satisfied in their relationships, and said only that while I certainly hoped to find a partner someday, there was no guarantee I would. He looked at me as if I had pulled a puppy from my purse and drowned it in my water glass. With an
2: attitude like that, he said, I fear for your future exact words. Yeah, it's that's well, it's tough to listen to. It's 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 even deeper than that, so I encourage everybody to read it. By the way, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley and my guest is Kim McLaren, who you just heard read from her latest book, Womanish. A grown black woman speaks on love and life. It's our February selection for Bookmarked the Under the Radar Book Club. You alluded to this a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but this really feels like I'm not sure you could have written much of this until you were really grown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, right. So I've heard singers say, blues singers particularly, or you know, or cabaret singers. You know, there's some songs I sang them when I was right. twenty. They didn't know but did I but met. didn't know. Yeah. Didn't know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I think that's what it is. I, I feel very good about this collection because I, I think it does exactly speak to that. That this stuff I couldn't have known when I was twenty or thirty or forty, really. I mean, you know, there's only some things that you can really understand as you as you age into them, if you're lucky and if and if you're working at it. Right. I mean, it takes work to get to get grown. I think that's why I like the word grown. You know, you you not everybody who is old is grown. <laughs> that is true. Uh, I mean, you know, and, yeah. it's, and and I'm not saying I'm all the way grown. I hope to continue growing. But that takes that takes work and effort. And and that's the gift of being grown. Again, I think this country, people want to be eternally adolescent because people want to be young. But there's such a richness and a wisdom and a joy in being grown and a relief yeah, right. There's a lot of stuff that's just a relief to let go and to stop being focused on. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's what I'm exploring in this collection,
2: what it means to be grown. Um, a lot of the folks who've read the book have put you in the category with uh, Roxane Gay, who is black. And somebody some people may know her as a commentator for um, The New York Times and her books, Bad Feminist or Hunger. Rebecca Solnit, that's a white woman who uh, writes for Harper's um, uh, magazine, mm-hmm. and I'm saying that because that's you know mm-hmm. high cotton as we would say for <laughs> yeah, both being cotton, yes. uh, <laughs> both being from Memphis. Uh, but it also I think speaks to there seems to be much more now of of women and certainly black women yes. uh, willing to speak truth, yeah, uh, about today and yeah. today's turbulent times.
3: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. fabulous. There are a lot of great collections coming out this this year, um, and there have been, and it's it's exhilarating because these voices have not been. Um, heard and heralded and taken seriously. My model, my template, again, is James Baldwin. But, you know, what? as much as I love James Baldwin, there are some things he didn't know because mm-hmm. he was still a man, mm-hmm. right? So we need to hear about these issues from a woman's perspective. And we need to hear from a black woman's perspective, because as we all know, all of these things, all of these experiences are shaped not only by your gender, but by your race in America, which is shaped by race. So, So even mothering, you know, I write about that is different. If you're a black mother raising black children, and 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 depression is different if you're a black woman. So um, I'm I'm thrilled
2: to be in that in that company. Also, the the often fraught relationship you dive right into um, uh, between uh, (laughs) black women and white women. The least
3: popular essay of the (laughs) book, I think. Yes, (laughs)
2: I I I mean I I I appreciate your your courage and jumping right into it. And I I do want you to read an excerpt uh, about that because. I thought, this is really interesting. This is called Becky and Me, Becky by the way. Becky and Me. Yeah. Becky and Me.
3: Okay. <laughs> white women sit at the right hand of power, leaning in, not down. There have been 37 white female governors and one each Latina and South Asian, but not a single black female one. And by the way, when I wrote this, that was true, and it's still true now, right, because mm-hmm. of uh, yeah. Stacy Adams. Uh, in fact, black women represent just 2.7 percent of all female statewide elected officials. Seventeen of the 21 female U.S. senators are white, as are the vast majority of female congressmen. White women hold only 4.4 percent of CEO positions, but black women hold a mere 0.2 percent. Every equal payday, white feminists decry the fact that women average 80 percent of a man's salary, but rarely mention that the figure applies mostly to white women. Latinas average 54 cents for every dollar. Black women average 68 American Indian and Alaskan Native women make 58 cents. Far more concerning is the wealth gap. The wealth of white women swamps that of black women, regardless of age, marital status, or education level. White women are still far more likely than black women to hold at least a bachelor's degree. Asian women swamp everyone. Be in the labor force or own a business or acquire the capital to fund a startup or to be among the full-time faculty at a degree-granting institution. <clears throat> In other words, even doing the right things doesn't help black women a shred as much as it helps white women. Yet rarely do white feminists take up the greater cause of black female inequity. White women are among the most vocal and vociferous opponents of affirmative action, despite being equal, if not greater, beneficiaries. White feminist heroes like Sheryl Sandberg come late to the acknowledgement of intersectionality, if they come at all. In her manifesto, Lean In, Sandberg admits the privileges afforded by her class and education, but sidesteps the privileges of whiteness while encouraging other women to lean in. The first comprehensive report on women in the business world by her organization did not even bother to break out data on women of color. Data, which, by the way, really sucks. This is what black women know. When push comes to shove, white women choose race over gender every single time. The election of Donald Trump with 54% of the white female vote, but just 6% of black women, is just one damaging and damning example. There are many, many more. Recall how slow white feminists were to come to Michelle Obama's aid when she was being savaged during the 2008 campaign. How quick they were later to jump on her for not being feminist enough. How absent are their voices when black women are being shot and beaten by cops.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that, and that's, um, I guess, Kim McLaren from her book, Women, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Love and Life. I, I wanted you to read that because um, what you do in the, in many of the essays, which is part of your, your reporter background, is you give us some data to think about, but it gets very personal about. Um, how that's played out in your life and in the lives of, of, of many other black and white women. Now, I want to say, and people should know, you have a lot of white friends. I do, right. <laughs> so so <is> there people <laughs> listening to this going, whoa, what right. does that mean?
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, you know, that's always an issue when you when a, when you take the risk to try it again, yeah. right, yeah. honestly about mm-hmm. race, right, and people, and mm-hmm. the people, and that's been my issue all of my life, so I worry about it, right, mm-hmm. because um, the people who are, The most, you know, calling me, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I say, it's ridiculous. I have far more, you know, the cliche, I'm going to say it, but it's true. Like some of my best (laughs) friends are white, right? You know, I mean, and, and, you know, if you come to, if you have, if I have a party in my house, um, which you know, know. it's going to be united colors of Benetton up <laughs> yeah. in there. Right. Yeah. Um, but those are white women who are woke and who who acknowledge, you know, mm-hmm. some of these issues. And so we can have these really we can actually which is what the essay is about. It's about it's about how if black women or white women are to really get move into sisterhood, mm. what has to happen? And it's possible. but I know because I got some white sisters. Yeah. But most white women, I would say, are not really interested in doing what's necessary. And that's what the essay is about. And if that's uncomfortable, I'm
2: I'm I'm not sorry. <laughs> um, so, who's the audience, um, as you see, for the book?
3: Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think it's. I think much of it speaks to to black women. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm speaking to my sisters first and foremost, um, and I think um, it's also speaking beyond that to white women who 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 want to know. It's speaking to people who care about depression. I mean, to care about um, um, the criminal justice system. I do an essay in there about my about my nephew. Um, um you know i i i think my core audience is is my people but um i think um you know, writing about an individual experience—if you are honest—speaks to the universal. It it really does. That's that's what all good writing does. Toni Morrison said, "I write about the human experience through the black experience," and that's what I'm. That's what I do too. That's what I aspire to do—to write about the human experience through the black experience. So anybody who's interested in the human experience, I think, could benefit from the book.
2: What do you want readers to take away?
3: Um, I want them to take away a kind of. Uh, questioning of themselves their lives their choices and their decisions and understand that these all that the society we live in is shaped by all of our individual and that every day we have a chance to make it better if we are honest with ourselves and our and and each other about our practices and our and that all starts at in in our own hearts so
2: well, thank you very much. Great book. That's the, right, the reason the reviewers are describing it as bold and well-crafted. Thank you. Thank you, Callie. <laughs> Kim McLaren is the author of Womanish, A Grown Black Woman Speaks on Love and Life. It's our February selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Kim will be signing books at the Harvard Bookstore Wednesday, February 6th. And Womanish is available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org slash news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at under the radar at WGBH.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.